Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and we're joined by author Annie David. Annie will be reading from her book, Paradise Undone, a novel of Jonestown. Annie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be on it. Oh, wonderful. Anytime. So we're just going to dive right in and I'll ask, can you please tell us a bit about the book? The novel is a very long look at the People's Temple and the massacre at Jonestown. But the massacre is not the point of the book or the end of the book. I wrote it because I discovered from all my research that everything is about Jim Jones. And he was just one person on over 900 people died that day. And they're always getting shafted because everybody wants to talk about Jim Jones. So I chose four protagonists, two who were based on real people who are dead. One of them is Jim Jones's wife. And she, I mean, it wouldn't have all happened without her. And she is so invisible to to history. So I, I wanted to write about her. And then I have two kind of composite characters who also represent sort of some other wings of of People's Temple, an African-American man who ended up there on drugs, got clean, and then stayed with him. And then there were a lot of people like that. And he escaped the day of the massacre from the jungle. And there was actually more than one person who did that. So he's one of my four protagonists. And then the other one who is real is based on the Guyanese ambassador to the United States, because I wanted to have a Guyanese character. And then the last one is a young white woman who is working in San Francisco when the massacre happens. And she's she's a kind of devotee to Jones, and it takes her a very long time to get over it, even after the massacre. Wow. Can we have a first reading, please? Okay. So I'm going to start with the... Guinea's ambassador and his part of the book, which is spread out, is uh, a letter he's writing. And uh, it starts out with the date and time, 9.30 p.m., November 18th, which is the anniversary of the massacre, 1981. So three years later, and he's in Washington, D.C., and it starts with a quote how can I live knowing what I know? Close quote. Voila, my clumsy translation of Camus. Je veux savoir si je puis vivre avec ce que je sais et avec cela seulement. You who read this document, you will attempt to compare me to Jim Jones. Am I as guilty as he, or just another victim? Americans adore victims. They love seeing themselves as underdogs, as sadly wronged good guys. They who know so little of how the rest of the world lives and works. 
they who always send their soldiers overseas. Born in Guyana, I have witnessed carnage at home, the decimation of a country by foreigners. Nancy and the boy sleep in the bedroom beside my study. The boy is my blood, but resembles Nancy. His skin is more white than black, conceived sometime during October of 1978. Nancy Levine Nascimento has been my wife of two years, formerly my mistress and chief lieutenant in the public relations army of General Jones. Together, we made this boy after I divorced my Guyanese spouse of 22 years. However, in my mind, he is the offspring of Jonestown. It's issue, as the British say, heir to the throne of Emperor Jones. Wow. So... On the website, I was talking to you about this earlier when I was um, looking on the Jonestown website, I read your post where you wrote that you quit your job as an English professor to write the book. Can you talk to us a bit about like that dedication to the story, the victims, or like what was it that compelled you to do it? Well, one of the main sources for my research was the archives, which are at San Diego State University, and they are now all online, and they are run by Dr. Rebecca Moore, who's a religious studies professor who has written numerous books about Jonestown. And you may know about American cults being called new religious movements nrm like it's a it's a it's an academic study now nrms and so um anyway so she's she's retired now but she has done all this writing and her husband is a journalist mac mcgee and they have they fought for access to all the material that was at Jonestown that the FBI was holding after the massacre. And Dr. Morse, two sisters and a nephew died in Jonestown. And she and her husband had actually visited Jonestown not, not too long before the massacre. So they had visited and then they came back to the States. So, I I didn't know, before I started the book, I didn't know anyone who had a personal connection to Jonestown, but I've gotten to know the two of them very well, and they have helped me from start to finish with everything in the, in the research. And one of the big things that I want to mention is that they have a tape library, and when I started doing this in 2004... The tapes were cassettes, you know, I was listening to them on my Walkman. I don't know if it's been upgraded, but hearing the voices of, because um, hearing the voices of Jones himself, but then all the other people was so moving and so powerful. 
And I had to keep hearing those voices because they've all been left in the shadow of crazy Jim Jones, who supposedly made his people kill themselves. And some did kill themselves, but others were murdered. And um, the media story, and when it happened, I was 18 years old and I was in college and the whole media circus was a crazy man, all these crazy people, and they drank the Kool-Aid, although it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was a, a knockoff called Flavor-Aid, um, that, but people don't know that. And then um, they all just died for him, and that is so not what happened. So I started researching... And everything was so fascinating. One of the really interesting books I read was about um, the re-education camps in China when the communists took over. And everything I read about this little chunk of history, right, which ostensibly has nothing to do with Jonestown, was... It was like a guide to how to break down people's will. For instance, you can't sleep and you don't eat enough protein. And just those two things and alone can make you break down the wills of people. They lose themselves. They lose their will. And so they were, they were harmed by practices that Jones, but not just Jones, he's only one person, his circle of powerful people who were mostly white women, although he also had a kind of security force that were mostly young black men. And so they all were enforcers. I'm going to use that word. So it's not like one man got to do all this to 900 plus people. So I needed to keep writing. So I had a sabbatical year and then my sabbatical was over, but I wasn't finished because I'd just done the, I'd just done research so far. I hadn't started writing the book because I needed to figure out who my characters were going to be because I didn't know that when I started. So then I turned my sabbatical. I got an unpaid leave for the following year. And my little boy had just started public school. And I kept working. And then there was some academic nonsense back at my college. And I said to myself, why should I go back there? I want to write this book. And I was very fortunate in that my parents were making a college fund for my son. So I just needed to work to support us, which in that time and place wasn't so bad. You know, I could just get any old job. And so that's what I did. I was a barista for six years (laughs) and other things as well. But um, I just had to keep writing it because my four characters needed to arrive in the world and get out from under the shadow of Jones. I love that dedication to voice and representation 
because you're right. When you hear about it, you don't hear about the victims as much. And you certainly don't hear about outside of that one name. You kind of don't recognize that, of course, it was this orchestrated kind of machine. Yes. One person might lead it, but there's all these other people that you need in order to control that many people and influence that many people. But could we have another reading, please? Okay. Now I'm going to, the book opens with a, um, a reporter interviewing Watts Freeman and Watts is the African-American man who survived the massacre, who escaped. And the interview, interviewer's name is Kenyatta Robinson, and it's for um, a Black Bay Area radio station. So he's still in the Bay Area. And so she asks a question. Do you believe there was racism in the People's Temple? I know that about 80% of the congregation was Black, but as you say... Most of the inner circle was white. And then Watts replies, most of people's temple was poor. That most important. The blacks and most of the whites weren't in the circle. So living in Jonestown, not so bad compared to the States. For some, it was better, way better. No crime, no worrying about not having enough cash for groceries, or what to cook for the next meal, no dog food for dinner, not being afraid of not having money for the doctor when you need one or the dentist, everything taken care of. That especially good for the old people. If my grandma had lived, she'd be on that plane to Guyana about five minutes flat. She'd clear out of Watts for good. You know that Congressman Ryan, he say Friday night before it all went down, he say something like, Quote, I know that for some of you, this is the best thing that ever happened to you, close quote. And everyone cheer like crazy, especially the old black folk. They're not cheering because Jimmy Jones told them to. That applause 100% real. But the rich white folk in the circle, and I mean the lawyers and the nurses and the PR types, they're not in Jonestown because their life's so awful back home. They're there to change the world. They're there because they think Jimmy Jones, the second coming of Marx and Che, Lumumba and Mao combined. He's the white leftist wet dream. So, yeah, they're racism in people's temple, like the Supreme Court, you know, white people making the laws for everybody else. Sometimes they let in a token or two. But that line, the exception proved the rule. Archie I. James in the circle for a while. Yolanda for a little bit. But then black folk didn't last. They too smart. Yolanda, one of the very smart ones, got away from Jonestown practically the day she arrived. And Archie, he dead now. Archie was Jimmy Jones from the start in Indiana. He didn't like Jonestown neither. Tried to quit the temple. But Jimmy knew that wouldn't look good not to have even one black in the higher-ups, even if it only on paper. So he sent Archie and his old lady back to the States. They're very happy to go, too. No question, People's Temple races like every other institution. You know one that ain't? But in Jonestown, I mean, before it went bad, we're having a pretty good time. The black folk and the white folk, too. I mean, the white people not in the circle. 
It beautiful in Guyana. The colors, the birds, super colorful sunsets every night. Me up and sober and seeing sunrises every morning. Even the rain felt good. Wow, when you think about it, you can you can see how something like that could appeal to people. Like a sense of being taken care of and of not exactly. being hungry and not um, being afraid. And you can see how that could be quite alluring to people, especially when governments yes. are not taking care of them. Exactly. And when they were in, when People's Temple was in the States, that's what they were doing. They had like young people go to the old people and the old, and they would like help them with their social security business. They drive them to doctor's appointments and dentist appointments and, you know, so that was part of their mission was to take care of people who needed taken care of. Wow. Can you talk a bit about the sort of research you did to write the book? And then I'm curious, what did the research make possible or challenging in terms of writing the story that you most wanted or needed to write? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the research helped me figure out what was the story. So I just started with reading everything I could get my hands on. So I wasn't at my school, so I didn't have library access. So I was basically ordering books from all over the world online and getting them. I mean, there's so much material about Jonestown and just about all of it is nonfiction history, psychology, religious studies, um, and other fields. And then there's also a lot of garbage out there where people are writing their conspiracy theories. And that's out there too. I mean, it's sort of worth just putting your eye on it just to see what a lot of people think. Mm. And then I said, like the tapes the tapes of of people talking. Um, They had a choir. The People's Temple had a choir and they were really good and they had albums. And so I got the music so I could listen to it. And, you know, there are memoirs from uh, survivors and then from people who didn't end up going over either. They didn't go over to Jonestown like my character, Truth, and she she felt terrible that she didn't get to go. She wanted to go. And for many people, they wished they had died that day because their family, you know, Jonestown was the People's Temple was their family and 900 members of their family died. And so what did the world look like for them afterwards? And then they're cast as these crazy people. You must have been so crazy to be in this organization. So I think the biggest challenge was what real life characters did I want to write about and who did I want to invent? And if I invented, I needed to use composites of real people that I could kind of read about their experiences. Or there were other, you know, there's a few documentaries and radio interviews so I was really interested in listening to their voices and so that part I just read is Watts talking and I heard 
one of the young men who survived by escaping that day. I mean, he got he got interviewed a lot, <laughs> as you can imagine. And so I heard his voice a lot. Wow. Could we have our final reading, please? Okay. Um, the last one is Marceline. And we meet Marceline back in 1949. And she is a nurse at a hospital in Indianapolis. And Indiana is a really segregated place, even though it's in the Midwest, not the South. And it was like the home of the KKK for a long time. So it's a very racist place. Okay, so it starts, only Marceline wanted to hold the Negro child with the nasty cough which turned out to be pneumonia. Aren't you the prettiest little girl, she murmured into the baby's burning ear as she carried her up from emergency to pediatrics. The infant, whose name tag read Baby Doe, had been left in the lobby, wrapped in a white bedspread, clean but many times mended in crazy quilt style, the intricate crosshatch testifying to the sewer's skill. Whoever left her had bathed and powdered the child and folded a change of clothing into the coverlet, which was promptly tossed in the trash by the receptionist who found her. The other nurses were pretending to be busy around the emergency room desk. Marceline took the girl from Mary Margaret, who was holding the infant as far away from her as possible. Come with me, sweetheart. Let's see if we can cool you down. Always, Marceline had loved the warmth of babies. She relished their fresh smell and bird sounds. We're going to get you all fixed up. After three years at Mercy Hospital, first as student nurse and now officially three months in RN, Marceline Baldwin, 22 years old, could testify to the want of merciful behavior at this institution, though its mission was to succor the poor and destitute of Eastern Indiana. I'm going to call you Cinnamon, said Marceline, as she weighed and measured the baby, then took her temperature. The baby had a coughing fit, which metamorphosed into full-on screaming, 106 degrees. Let's get her into a lukewarm bath, Marceline called to one of the aides. A young blonde in a pink assistant smock backed away. Nurse Sinclair just asked me to help get a patient out of bed. I'll do it, came a male voice. A very young man walked ahead of her into the bathing area, opened the door and turned on the water before carefully taking the baby from her arms. Nurse Baldwin, will you adjust the temperature? I don't want to get it wrong and burn her. Now, to the baby, he said in a playful voice, now you're one hot little girl, aren't you? We're going to get you cooled down first thing. While she checked the water, the boy tickled the baby's tummy. He was white like Marceline, but his hair and eyes shone brilliant black. He seemed exotic, not only in his unusual appearance, but due to his apparent indifference to the baby's skin color. 
Are you new, Mr. She paused. I'm Jim. Jim Jones just started this morning. Wow. So where can we buy Paradise Undone, a novel of Johnstown? There's a Kindle version on Amazon. There's a paperback version on Amazon UK right now. And there will be another version on the Amazon US site any minute. We're having some last minute struggles with it, but it's destined to be live by the 18th of November, which is the 45th anniversary, the day the book is officially published. Wow. Well, thank you so much for um, for being my guest, for reading to us, for talking to us about the book. Congratulations on the publication, especially you've been researching and diving into their story and trying to get their voices heard for a while and thank you for your dedication to them. Yeah, thanks for allowing me to speak to your audience. I'm very grateful. It's my pleasure.